everybody. Welcome to the Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I'm your host, Brian April. This week's guest is a good friend of mine. Uh, he performs all over the globe, performs for the troops. Uh, you've seen him on David Letterman. Uh, you've seen him on uh, all sorts of shows. He's been everywhere, Comedy Central, Bob and Tom, Sirius XM, you name it, he's done it. Uh, very, very funny. He's an Emmy-winning uh, comedy writer, and uh, we're very, very lucky to have him here. So please bring in my friend, Steve Maison. What's up, Steve? Hey, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well, bud. How are you doing? Good, and happy uh, happy belated birthday, right? What are we, are uh, we uh, a day or two away from... Uh, yesterday, yeah, one day. So yeah, one day. Yesterday. Hey, my uh, just to get us started, uh, my dog has a trick. For some reason, this was I didn't teach her the trick. She barks if you sing only "Happy Birthday." So I'm going to sing "Happy Birthday" for you, and she's going to join me. Watch this. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Brian. Happy birthday! <laughs> hey, that was awesome. Uh, you wanted to. I was like, "Look, it was yesterday. We missed it." And she's like, "No, we should still do it." Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> that's cool. Uh, I always like to start by uh, talking a little bit, like how uh, I met uh, my guest, or or when I've seen the guest. And um, uh, I don't exactly remember when I met you, but I remember. Um, seeing your act and the thing i love about your act is it's very smart it's very um funny you have great facial expressions oh, thank you. and um you, you make me laugh out loud you had a, a joke um that uh, i won't say because it's a clean uh, show back in the day <laughs> you're 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 pretty clean comic anyway yeah. but um you you had a bit about going to see uh, the harry potter movie and the person yeah, behind you yeah. was talking and um, yeah, there was a little kid behind me. I could give you the clean version. There's a little kid behind me, and uh, it was like watching the Harry Potter, and it was me and like 700 kids. And at the one point, there's the mean adopted dad, if you've seen the movies, and he's like, you know, he's like, he'll never go back to that Hogwarts school again. And this little girl behind me in the theater uh, stood up on her chair and she yelled at the screen, and she was like, oh, yes, he will. And it, it was just, you know, it was so cute and adorable. And I turned around and I was like, Shut the heck up! <laughs> I did not pay ten bucks to listen to you talk through the whole movie. <laughs> so so that, yeah, that was the the just uh, so, yeah. that one. I love that joke. That was... Thank you. I I appreciate that. I love uh, I, the two two words I love most is you know when a fan comes up or 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 someone who likes your comedy if they say smart and silly that's what I that's what I aim for. Those are. I, because they seem so different that I, yeah. that I love I love when those cross paths. Yeah, they're 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 great, and uh, you have a great style, and people should definitely uh, follow you if they can uh, at Steve Mazon M A Z A N on Instagram and Twitter is at Steve underscore Mazon. Yes, so that's much your, your, your that's, that's your middle name is underscore <laughs> yeah. Steve underscore Mazon. There it is. <laughs> so, uh, so <laughs> uh, now, uh, what inspired you to uh, start doing comedy? I'm sorry, go ahead. Danger's my middle name. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that one? I said my middle name is Danger. I Danger. think you know that, right? That's true. I, you, you know, know. They, people always use that in movies where they're like, Danger's my middle name. Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather have the guy whose first name is Danger? Wouldn't yeah. that be the better guy? Or Absolutely. It, like, why are you bearing the danger if you're, you're middle name? Yeah. So then would it be like Danger Steve <laughs> Danger. Bond? <laughs> 
Danger April. Yeah. It's Danger <laughs> Bob Danger? April. Ooh, that's... Bob is my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a comedian whose stage name is Danger, right? I would think so. I mean, obviously, we have Rodney Dangerfield, but uh, right. where, where it's just, we know Gary Cannon. That's a sta yep. stage name. Uh, <laughs> there's got to be a danger out there somewhere. Yeah, people ask me if my name, my last name's a stage name, and it's not. Yeah, no, I can see that because it it sounds like it just because it's it's got such a nice ring to it and that. But it, if you see the spelling, it would be weird if you went with April and then and then added letters. Right? Yeah, I was like, well, why would I have a stage name that people can't spell and people can't pronounce? <laughs> that's, right. that's the that's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. the total like a, opposite. Uh, I'm going with the stage name Danger, but it's spelled with a Q. Exactly. You can't find me. Yeah, it's D A J. <laughs> yeah. Danger. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so weird. So, uh, what inspired you to uh, to start doing stand up? You know, this is this is going to seem so strange, uh, but it actually I think speaks a little bit to the times we're living in right now. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, as you can tell, uh, despite my bad lighting, I am a uh, Midwest white guy, uh, Polish, Irish, German, uh, about as you know, white as you can get. And my heroes growing up were were all black. I, uh, Walter Payton was my sports hero growing up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And when I was 12 years old, uh, well, no, less than 12 years old, probably, probably 11 or 12, my mom came home and announced we got, we got cable. And I was like, are we rich? You know, it was a big deal. Everyone had cable now, but at that time, like it, only my rich friends had cable. And so we, that night it, it came on, we watched, I remember we watched, it was around Christmas and we watched, uh, there was a Rich Little comedy special. It was like him doing a Christmas Carol. Okay. And so, like he, so like Johnny Carson was Bob Cratchit, his, um, you know, uh, Ava Gabor was someone was Mrs. Cratchit, that kind of thing. So he did, he played every role. It was pretty funny, but we watched that together and my mom was like, okay, time to go to bed, you know, cause I had school, I think the next day. And so we went to bed, but then I came back out in the living room and turn the cable back on and Richard Pryor live was on that comedy special. And I had seen, you know, Richard Pryor in a movie before I had seen comedians on Johnny Carson before who do like five minutes or something like that. But all of a sudden here was a guy talking for an hour and a half, just literally about his life and making it funny. And I was like, I was blown away. I was like, Oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know that that was an option for your life that you could do that. But like, again, mm. it seemed like the guys who were comedians, and Johnny Carson just showed up and, and I didn't, I didn't know that there were clubs that they worked and that kind of thing. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, Oh my God, I want to do that. I want to, I want to be able to do that for a living. You know, they showed this crowd and it was an obvious, like a, you know, a, a theater of, of thousands of people. And uh, so, yeah, that's what inspired me that that's special. And I was like, someday I'm going to do a comedy. Now it took me, took me another <laughs> 20 years to get the, uh, the cojones to, to right. But uh, from that moment, that's when I said, I, I want to be a comedian. Huh. So, uh, Richard Pryor, were, were there any other stand-up comedians that you ended up liking? And, and Yeah, it did. That, that goes to the point that I'm talking about. My comedy is nothing like Richard Pryor's. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not racial, and people consider me generally a clean comedian. It's silly. Uh, but it was just the – but yeah, I think he's all those things, too. I mean, he's silly. He's very smart, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. But it's just there'd be no comparison. Yes, I fell in love with uh, David Letterman. Uh, was the reason uh, that I then I, I started watching him uh, because I was that made me fall in love with comedy, the Richard Pryor, and then after Johnny Carson because my parents would watch you know Johnny Carson. After him came on David Letterman around the same time, so it was a kind of a, a you know formative early '80s years. Uh, 
I would stay up a little later, watch him. And again, it was supposed to be in bed. And uh, David Letterman was on and he'd have on different comedians. And first of all, Dave was funny. He wasn't, right. he, he was from the Midwest. He had a gap in his teeth. He looked, you know, so, you know, he wasn't Johnny Carson. He didn't seem smooth. He didn't see like he wore gym shoes, you know, and khakis. And he just seemed more laid back. He was from Indiana, right next door, a Midwest guy. So all of a sudden, it, it just felt like, you know, more me. It was like a little bit of the Richard, Richard Pryor had grown up in Illinois. So maybe there was a, a Midwest angle to all this, too. But so I fell in love with David Letterman, and I fell in love with he had different comedians on, too. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. guys who were, who were not the usual, uh, you know, club, playboy club act kind of thing. They, they, these guys were turning the guys turning comedy on its head. Uh, I, it seems silly because he's so mainstream now. But Jay Leno, Andy Kaufman, you know. Uh, those guys, Stephen Wright, uh, mm. Stephen Wright made his debut on uh, Carson, but uh, all those guys, Bill Bill Hicks, um, mm. uh, uh, I forget the big Sam Kinison, Sam Kinison's David Letterman appearance is one of my favorites. Um, so it was that kind of thing. That's that's what made me want to do it. Like the inspiration was prior, and then the, the realization that oh my god, there's so many people doing this that you could really do it was yeah from David Letterman and and wanting to get on that. It's and funny. I think like I will be on the David Letterman show one day like that. I, that was a the, seeing Richard Pryor play to a theater seemed ridiculous. He was a movie star as well. But but watching David Letterman and seeing these comics on that seemed attainable. That seemed <laughs> like, OK, I might be able to do this someday. I'm not I'm not going to sell out <laughs> you have to be famous to do what Richard Pryor does. But I, di I didn't know when Sam Kinison came on the first time. I didn't know who he was. You know, I mean, right. I had him in a movie. So I was like, oh, OK, well, I could. I think I could be funny for five minutes eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so, <laughs> so uh, not the way. We'll, we'll get into that because you actually yeah. did get on uh, the David Letterman show. We'll yeah. get into that in a bit. But it, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, Richard Pryor was your influence. Mine was Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. His uh, Delirious album and his uh, the one before that, Eddie Murphy Comedian, was yeah. like, you know, it's filthy, but it's, you know, you're – however old you are and you're like oh this is amazing but i started watching i think when i was like 10 yeah watching stand-up comedy and then when i hit 13 i was allowed to watch uh some more risque yeah uh special not from my parents but my my brother was like okay you're 13 here you can yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, that's, yeah that's and he's true. like showed me like buddy hackett and all these right He's filthy. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> shouldn't be. Thank, thank God for older brothers and uncles and those exactly. guys. And dads who listen to their wives, you know, that, that slide you to those things you shouldn't be watching. Yeah. yeah. But but watching Eddie Murphy and him, you know, weaving in and out of impressions and all that was like, oh, that's so cool, you know. And so yeah. that totally inspired me. And then I just fell in love with so many comics like Paul yes. Poundstone and Louis Anderson and, mm -hmm. you know, just that whole early, you know, uh, group of comedians during the boom. So that was, yeah, hundred percent. I still, I still love those guys. I mean, it, 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 it's fun. Even when I'm, I'm friends now, you know, you make friends with some comedian and then they're a guy that's been around for a long uh, time or something. And I see like, uh, Louis Anderson commented on my friend's thing. And I'm like, I'm like one person. <laughs> yeah. I'm Louis Anderson. Like I grew up with Louis Anderson. I watched, you know, his cartoon. I watched, yep. you, know, you know, all this stuff. It's yeah. I love Louis. He, I love Louis. He's so such a hey, and you know he's got that like that nice, lovable Minnesota like <laughs> personality. Yeah. 
So, um, do you remember your first uh, stand-up show? What what was finally the impetus to go? I'm doing this. Yeah, what was that well, first show? I, uh, I I went uh, after after school. Like I said, I didn't have the cojones to do it, but I knew I wanted to. In the back of my head, you know, the kind of growing up in the Midwest, you did it wasn't a share your dreams. We're living in a much more shared society, which I, which I think is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you kept this stuff to yourself, and it was so it was always in the back of my head that I wanted to do this. I went in the Navy after high school then college after the Navy. And then, so I was in my late twenties and I moved out to California because my sister was living in the Bay area up near San Francisco and she had two kids and I wasn't going to have kids anytime soon. So I moved out there to kind of see them grow up. And uh, two months after I moved out there, her husband got a job back in Chicago. (laughs) And so they all packed up and moved back. And I was like stuck out here alone. So I was like, do All right. Do I move back to Chicago or, do I stay here? And so I decided to stay. And uh, I had heard that San Francisco had a great comedy scene. I knew Rob Williams was from there. I knew Jake Johansson was from there from all the comedy mm-hmm. specials mm-hmm. Said that, that, that we paid attention to then. And so um, I started looking into it and found an open mic scene. And I took a comedy class. And uh, uh, the, I eventually was like, okay, I'm going to go do it. And I went out and there was a place called the Brainwash Comedy uh, or Brainwash Laundry Cafe. And they had a comedy night. So it was a, a, a laundromat that just had like a great, great, they had great food though. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> so I went, I was an idiot. So I showed up uh, in like a sport coat <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, like at the 1980s yep. old comic, uh, sport coat, jeans. I went in after work. I had a day job. So I, I drove into the city afterwards, terrible traffic, got into the city. And, uh, you know, I think sign up was it, they said, was at six. But the show started at eight. So I had had a full day. I get there. I was the first one there. I sign up. I was I was smart enough somehow. I was like, don't sign up first. Let someone else go because you're going to be nervous. And so I signed up, I think, second or third. And I was like, okay, great. You know, the show starts at eight. I'll be up by 820, the latest after the host. And I guess 830, I'll stay for a couple of comics. I should be home by 930 or so in bed, you know, since I had a long day. I had to get out, wake up. It was a Tuesday. So I had to wake up the next day for, for work. And so I signed up third and then the guy came in, uh, you know, around, you know, 730. Tony Sparks was his name. And uh, he still runs a show up there. Uh, and and he goes, oh, who's who's this Steve Mazon? You know, or Mazin, he pronounced my last name wrong. And I go, that's me. And he'd like look me up and down. Uh, and he's like, mm, this guy looks looks stupid. And uh, he goes, you ever done it? And I go, no, it's my first time. And he goes, OK, well, I'm going to I'm going to let we're going to move you down a little. We're going to let some <laughs> other people go, blah, blah, blah. And so I end up going. I didn't go on till eleven o'clock. Oh man! That I just kept getting bump, 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 bump further. I was looking over, and he'd be like, "Oh, oh, so and so just showed up. Like we're gonna put him up first. There, there was a time during that show where it was packed. I mean, people from the neighborhood came, and it, you know, it was, and I say packed. There was probably like thirty audience members and twenty comedians, which would make for a great show. Right. And there was there was fifteen or twenty people who were literally doing laundry and folding and, and listening. <laughs> And uh, by the time I got up, it was me, the comic who had just gone, Tony, who ran the room, and then the guy who was uh, who was running the cafe, and he was cleaning up, just cleaning stuff up. And then one lady was folding her laundry, but really not watching. So she was really the only audience member, and then just the the, the rest of us. And uh, I went up. I I got one laugh. I remember from the guy who was cleaning up, who worked there. He laughed at something, and. Uh, I, I walked off and the, you know, the host said something nice to me and the other guy said something and I walked off and I swear to you, Brian, as I walked to my car, even though I had to drive home an hour now to my, 
place and get up the next morning. I was, was going to be after midnight by the time I got home. I had to get back up at six for work. As I walked to my car, I did one of those uh, Judd Nelson, like <laughs> that I had done it. You know what I mean? Like I was like, well, uh, you know, you did it. You had said you've been saying for 20 years you're going to do this. And, and you finally did it. And I was like, yeah, as I went to my car. Sorry, I'm all sweaty. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, it's probably it's probably about three, four months till I'm on The Tonight Show. Whereas David let him This is quickly at this point. <laughs> I, was, I was obviously way, way off. But so, uh, I was so excited just to have done it. It was, it was it didn't matter how it went that first time. Yeah, that 11 p.m., three people there, and you're hooked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's electricity in the air, and it wasn't just the static cling from the yeah. laundry. <laughs> That's so crazy. That's, uh, so So you just kept going back and just and then, Yeah, Yeah. I, my thing then was to uh, – I had it, I, I had, luckily had a day job that I didn't have to worry about money or anything. I had a car that helped in San Francisco a lot. So people would find out, you know, a lot of people who lived in the city didn't have cars. And so when they found out someone who did have a car, they'd be like, oh, why don't, if you'll drive to this gig, I'll get you stage time on it. So um, I just started taking every everything anyone would offer me. I would keep track during, on my desk at work each day. I had like one of those giant, you know, desk calendars, you know, with every day. And I would keep track of how many sets I did each week. I think my record was, was 19 sets one week I got wow. in. Um, but yeah, I would take any, any stage time I could. And uh, yeah, it it's, uh, it it took a while to you know get your footing and, and feel like you knew what you were doing. Um, but but that's what everyone's advice was just that. Just keep getting up on stage. There, there's no substitute for that. And I, I I just still think that's the best advice you can give. Yeah. Well, besides the um, besides the whole like just get up, get up, get up. What do you what do you think is the, what is the best piece of advice you got besides that? Just outside of that. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> That's a good question. Yeah, because because it is always the one the one I say. I mean, you know, don't be hard on yourself. I mean, um, the the stage time is just really invaluable because it's it's a it's it's a foreign thing. You know, I don't you know it's mm -hmm. people say it's it's the thing they're most afraid of is speaking to strangers, and that's what we decide to do for a living. And so that's why it's so valuable just to just to get up because and, and learn that you know subconsciously even if you're dying even if it's a coffee house and no one's listening to what you say you being on stage is valuable because you get used to it at some level then um i i think yeah probably the other the other thing would would be patient to try not to compare yourself to others that's the hardest part of course um so that's probably yeah i would say the second best advice i could think of don't compare yourself to others. There's, there's guys. I remember one of one of the guys I started with. I was probably two, two or three years in in San Francisco then. And this young kid, uh, I don't want to say his name just because someone says something in this story says something disparaging about him. Uh, but they're like, hey, Brian, that guy Brian is terrible. He's been doing it for two years and he he's just awful. He was like, right. a young kid who was going to school in SF State, and but uh, my buddy was like, he's just he's just not getting any better. I was like, no, yeah, it's not. And then just uh, like after three years, like he still had another year. And then just after three years, something just clicked. And all of a sudden he was unstoppable. Huh. And he had, and there was no sign of that before. <laughs> you know, you know, there's guys you can see like up for five minutes and you're like, not good, not good. And then, and then something, all of a sudden they just tap into something like a little laugh here or a style. And you're like, oh, okay, he's on to something. There was no sign of that for this guy for three years. And then just all of a sudden, everything came together and it clicked and he was young and he was good looking. But none of this stuff you would have even given him credit for before that because 
there was no sign that he was funny. And then uh, again, so yeah, don't be hard on yourself because everyone learns at a different different level, and it's you, you can't tell what you're learning is is half of it, right? You know, yes. like you, you and I go out to play a catch baseball or something. You, know, you teach your son to to throw a ball or something. You can see that he's getting better. There there isn't that in comedy. Like the there is no practice. You you only get to learn it by right. doing it, and you can't tell because the every audience is different if you're really learning or not. So it's 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 hard. Yeah, it's I I remember when um I felt like things clicked for me the first time. I I can tell still tell you what where it was. I was in Lewis yeah. and Maine, yeah. and it was like yeah. I was on a stage and. Uh, I could tell you, I could still tell you the layout of the bar and the club and all of that sort of stuff. And then I was up there and then just something just, and I was like, Oh, I get it. You know? Yeah. And then since, and since then it was like, you know, as long as the room's remotely set up for, for comedy and people are remotely there for comedy, then usually, you know, the inconsistency, it right. starts to, you know, you start to just go up more, you know, the, the inconsistency kind of stays yeah. away and you get it. So, um, is, what is about, there anything you can grab though that you can say this is what happened in that moment, or it's just all no, of I think it was just the, the matter of time of just being up there, being yeah. up there, being up there. It's just those repetitions, and then yeah. you can get that muscle memory or whatever. And then, yeah. you know, because especially if, you, if you're really analytical about your comedy and you sit there and go, okay, what worked, what didn't work, why are they not laughing? They're always. You know, if you record yourself and you listen back and go, all right, they're always laughing here, but they, they, this is inconsistent and this one never gets a laugh. And so, like, you just start looking yeah. for the puzzle pieces of yeah. why is this working? Why is that working? What am I doing with my face? What am I doing with my hands? What am I doing with my body? How am I saying it? You know, uh, my gosh, you know, the all the things of what's funny or bum butt, you know, hiney, <laughs> glutes, you know, all of the different word choices that you can yeah. use or whatever. And then with all of those, the timing, the phrasing, the emphasis, the, again, the, the, the physicality, all of that. So I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was, but that, right. that kind of, you know, that clicked. So how, when did things kind of click for you? You know, I, I think, I think I, my first thing was uh, I, that I remember like that. It, it seemed like more of a, a gradual kind of thing. Like slowly, I just seemed to be getting a little more laughs and stuff. It's hard to like one moment, but it, but if there had to be one moment, I remember writing my first closer. You okay. know what I mean? Where I wrote something that I that I got so confident in because it uh, it worked the the first time I told it, it worked great, and then I quickly realized no matter how the set went before that, and and before I made up the closer. If I if I tried to go after it, it didn't matter after it. That joke always worked. It, it just didn't matter if the audience was half paying attention or whatever. It just all of a sudden that I had one joke and that confidence that came to me with knowing that I have that in my pocket. So even if I'm dying for I get a five minute set, I'm dying for four minutes. That confidence I had in, in my back of my head is like, all right, I, I know that they're gonna they'll love this. That allowed me to to not care as much about the first four minutes and relax a little bit. Whereas, whereas had I not, when I didn't have that in my back pocket, it was just a little panic. Like, Whoa, what about this? Right. What about this? You know, you know, but knowing that there was one that, okay, this baby always works. That, that helped me so much. Um, so that, that was a big thing. Like uh, again, and then you have the building blocks, right? Then you got to find an opener that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that can, that can bookend it. So you, yep. know, like you can start strong and end strong. Um, but yeah, so there's there's weird stuff like that. That's a great great piece of advice, as you said, 
be analytical because those are the things to, you know, you, you should be analytical about your own set. Mm -hmm. uh, so, that, so that you can figure those things out. Yeah, it's uh, and for those who uh, aren't necessarily comedians, a closer is your your final joke, your yes. last bit of materials that closes your set. Uh, yeah. Opener is obviously what opens your set, and like you said, it, it's as gosh, I remember those days when you you don't have a closer, yeah, and you're just like because you wanna you always want to leave on a laugh. That's mm -hmm. you can get nothing mm -hmm. for, for four and a half minutes, and if you can get a laugh, then you just go, I'm out, and it just you know, <laughs> yeah. but when you when you try and you you and your closer is supposed to be your best joke, uh, essentially, yeah. and then you you do your best joke and it gets nothing. There's nothing worse than having that last joke get nothing, and you go, yeah. oh, "Well, I was hoping to go out on a laugh with that one." <laughs> I got nowhere. <laughs> that, yeah, that yeah. is the worst feeling. You just slink off a stage <laughs> like nothing worked. <laughs> that's, um, that's I could do, and you didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a. Uh, it's terrible, but <laughs> thankfully, you know, it's, uh, you know, those days are once the hardest part is always the beginning of yeah. comedy, you know? And then I always tell people like, that is the hardest part. I mean, it's always, there's always levels that you can go up, but in the yeah. beginning, you just have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea why you say this thing and it turns the audience against you and you have no <laughs> yeah. idea where, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then, like, once you figure that out, you're like, okay, you know, at least. Right. So it uh, is. It's, it's those things because, again, it, it's because you can't practice it because you can only do it doing it right. in the live audience. That that the stakes are just as real. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's, uh, you know, uh, at a comedy club or a coffee house or anything like that. The rejection is the same. Right. Places it feels just as bad. So um, you you can hypothesize. You can be analytical after your set about what worked and what didn't, but anything before you're just, it's a, all a hypothesis that you're like, I wonder if in between jokes I could do this or I could say this to the audience, but you don't know. You could say that thing that you think in writing is like, this will, this will get them to like me and come to me and it could have the complete opposite effect. <laughs> and you don't know till you do it. Uh, uh, you know, that's the fun of comedy is, is it's immediate, but that's, it's also the rejection is immediate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's true because the audience doesn't know you're practicing. Like no. they're expecting, they're expect, they're expecting free bird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're yeah. expecting yeah. that this, this <laughs> isn't your first time trying to play a chord. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's such a, a weird uh, dynamic. Um, what is your writing process like? Yeah, it's, it's changed over the years. It used to be when you start, you know, you, you have no material because you, you, you're not a comic. So right. Uh, I used to write at that time when I started um, a half hour a day, just free write. And uh, it didn't have to be funny, but I, you know, I would attempt to make funny, but I, you had to start writing at one point and a half hour later you could stop. And so, um, you know, a lot of it was gibberish, but a lot of, and, but good stuff came out of that. Eventually, you know, you start crafting stuff or you, at least you're editing yourself on the fly where you're like, nope, this will work better this way as you're writing it stuff. So it helped with the writing process. But once I got... I think probably 15 or 20 minutes of material. And I don't mean that like a young comic because you know <laughs> young comics are always like, I got 15 or 20 minutes of material. That means I had two good minutes probably. Yep. Maybe two minutes. That's probably, I'm probably overestimating. None of those jokes I do now. That's how bad they are. But at that time, they were the best two minutes I had. Right. And besides that, I had written 18 other minutes that I could throw out there. That didn't mean I had 20 minutes of material, but that's, that's what I had written. And so, uh, but it, to that point, 
I probably started at that point because then I could do different five minute sets at least, you know, attempt these things. So then I would, I would probably start, uh, you know, writing more on inspiration at that point rather than uh, the, the put it down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that probably took, I, I would think probably a year, year and a half to get to that point where I stopped the free writing and then I would write maybe once a week, I would sit with some friends and we'd write and shoot ideas and that kind of thing. But then it started to become more inspiration where like just I would notice something and I would put it down then at any time where it wasn't scheduled. You're going to write for this amount of time. It was more like, ah, that's funny. Uh, write it down either as an idea or why was it funny and figure it out and try and reverse engineer it. Or if you know me and Brian were talking and we started cracking up and then uh, we decided who gets to keep this. Yep. <laughs> And then I went back to my book and I wrote it down and was like, okay, because that, that's the difference, right? Uh, where yeah. everyone always says there's a funny guy at my work. Yeah, that, there's the funny guy at work. He may be funnier than me at your work, but his, his, his stuff at work doesn't transfer to the stage. That's, right. that's the trick of the comedian is taking the thing that's funny and bring it to uh, 300 strangers who don't know you, who don't work with you, who don't have the inside joke of it all, who don't know you all, who you walk out on the stage and they don't know you. They haven't worked with you for three years, so they know your sense of humor already. You have to walk up naked and get them to like you and laugh at you. That's that's what a comedian is. That's the trick. That's the difference. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it was that. Just just kind of – So and I still today. So, yeah, that was probably, like I said, maybe a year and a half, two years into to it when I stopped writing specifically for it. Um and just go more by inspiration. And I, I probably, the amount I put out is, is probably equal to that. Mm. Just, but it comes throughout the day now versus sitting down for something and uh, yeah, doing that, doing it that way. Now you also ended up, uh, spoiler alert, uh, writing for the Ellen DeGeneres show. Yes. Um, so, but that you have to have content every day. Yeah. So how was what is the difference between kind of walking around and going, getting inspiration versus, hey, we're talking about, um, you know, the, the monkeys that escape the zoo? Yes. Yeah. That, well, that's it. it it's, uh, it's an influx of exactly that. And so you're, 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 instead of me sitting down a half hour a day, <laughs> I was sitting down eight to 12 hours a day in an office on the Warner Brothers lot. Uh, and then it's you trying to overflow yourself with inspiration. You had your computer on your desk, open up to Yahoo and uh, the news sites. You had a TV in your room so that you know you could have the news on to keep up on topical stuff and just what's happening. You had to be on social media so you know what's trending, what are people talking about. Um, anytime you see you know Thirty Rock or the old Dick Van Dyke show, that kind of thing, the, there there's a you know, there's a hallway and someone's got a scooter and they're playing, you know, they're playing tennis and stuff. Anything that just can spark you, keep you talking with someone and spark something. And, and it's just tossing out ideas. Um, there wasn't enough of that. I, that's the one thing I didn't like about Ellen's show specifically. It was much more, you were given an assignment, go write a monologue and you would go back to your room and you'd write by yourself. Whereas my favorite thing from being a comedian, I think, that you know, it's my favorite part. It's 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 you and I mm-hmm. do a show together, and then me, you, and our friend Lee Levine, we go and Gary, we go yep. we eat and we we laugh for an hour, right? Probably, probably come up with four or five new bits each because we're we're like, oh my god, that's hilarious! You want that? I want that. You know, like yeah, hey, absolutely. Yeah, right, Brian, you're like, hey, Steve, you did a new. Is that new? Yeah. Oh, you should say this after that. You know what I mean? It's that bouncing stuff off. Um, so I think most writers' rooms, like I said, Ellen was was particularly uh, a different thing in that. But I think that's what most writers' rooms end up being is 
is a you know a group exercise like that where you're where you're working with others and you come up with this ah you that's a great idea but what about this oh right. that's hilarious what about this and you you know so you're you might even be so far from your original idea but it, it's it's the bouncing it off each other that they could and so that's why it's uh, there are so many inputs things to uh, inspire you hopefully or you know keep you up on the day's news or whatever's happening. Yeah, and that's why it's good to have a, a circle of comedy friends. I think. Um, yeah. You know, especially it's it's easier now with with you know all the inventions and you know cell phones and internet and email and all that and texting, but you know starting out when when internet's not really a big thing or anything like that, it gets hard because as you know, once you start going up, like we used to do shows all the time together, because uh, yeah. we're we're newer, we're lower on the food chain, right. so we can all be on the same show, but as you start going up and you start featuring, you start headlining, yeah. you don't stack multiple headliners be on the same show. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, you don't get to see each other as much. And so you don't right. get that camaraderie and um, you don't get the the bouncing of the ideas as much. So yeah. it's always nice. You know, we, we used to do a, a show uh, called the hot monkey love cafe uh, and uh, you know, just, you loved it. And it was, you know, it was, it was Dwayne Perkins, who's a national headliner yourselves, national headliner, Lee Levine, Gary Cannon, you know, all these people who are, are just amazing headliners and we would just go have a ball. And then, you know, we're all like, okay, well now we're off to the improv or we're off to DC or yeah, we're off to, so, so it's uh it's, it's good to have a, a little, a click of, of people because you get to enjoy some of those fun shows and uh, kind of leads me into my next question. Um, we always talk about the fun shows, but mm -hmm. what we really have fun with are what are the worst shows? What is the worst show <laughs> you've ever had? Because, uh, there's nothing yeah. funnier to to other comics than watching a comic <laughs> that they know is good. Yeah, absolutely, just die on stage. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got so many of us. <laughs> I, Denise was with me. My wife Denise, she was with me, and we were in San Francisco. This is probably five years ago now, and I was doing some radio, and uh, it was one of those places. You ever been in a radio uh, place where they they've got like four stations? Like as a kid, I always remember like WKRP. You thought it was in a building. Yeah. It was one, but there's always like some center and it's actually like six or seven radio stations all mm -hmm. sharing the same area. So I, I was having fun on one show and then like a couple other shows were like, Hey, would you come on my show next? Would you come on? So I eventually ended up on some sports show and it was like the third one I was on that morning. And Denise was in the studio with me, just standing in the background. And, uh, and the guy goes, Hey, tell me about your, your worst show like ever. And I was like, okay. Um, and I'm thinking he goes, Oh, are you one of those guys? That you you never have a bad show. You're gonna complain. You never die. And like Denise and I looked at each other and just started busting out laughing because she knew that what 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 I was thinking about was like, no, there's so many. I don't know <laughs> what about like which is the which is the worst. Uh, so her and I had the conversation like on the drive back from from San Francisco, and I think this still holds up as my worst. Uh, I was hired uh, to do stand up comedy. Actually, I did this twice, but uh, they're both bad. But uh, uh, at a minor league baseball game. Oh, no. Yes. And, uh, it was out in Riverside, uh, which isn't a fancy area in the first place. And uh, they have a, a, I think it was called the Quakes, is the, are their, the name of their, their team. And the improv was partnering with them. So the guy, the manager of the improv said, hey, Steve, you know, you're a clean comedian. Would you come and, you, you know, uh, do this thing? They want to do a cross-promotional thing. And the idea will be you'll do stand-up comedy in between each inning. So as the as the you know the each inning switching and the the players are running back out, you'll just go and you'll do it on the uh, 
the dugout. You'll stand on the home team's dugout and and do stand up comedy. Now, uh, my stomach's already in, like my stomach's already in my throat. I, I'm just dying already. <laughs> yeah, it was. It had disaster written all over it. But I was a I was a young comic. I was stupid. Uh, I wanted the improv jersey. They said they'd give me an improv jersey, and I could eat uh, free food at the ballpark. And uh, I, I, I can't even remember if there was money involved because it was at the time where I might have just done it for the experience. And uh, Gary Cannon, our mutual friend, which was a big mistake here, I brought him with. They said you could bring someone. And uh, as you talk about, there's nothing more fun for comedians to, to laugh at other comedians dying. And probably the worst comic you would want there is Gary Cannon for it because he's one of these people that has that laugh that is unmistakable when he's laughing at someone else's pain and it just, it just twists the, <laughs> the blade in your back, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I went up after the first inning and uh, I'm, you know, I jump up on the <laughs> dugout and I start talking. Well, half the crowd doesn't even know where I'm at. You know, they, they don't have a, they don't put me on a scoreboard and it's a minor league game. So it's just my voice coming out over the thing already. And, and people are doing it. And the people who can see me are, they're like, this is stupid. This is awful. Uh, maybe there's one person smiling and the only laughing I heard for that whole, probably did like two minutes in between each inning and they finally pulled the plug like the seventh inning. They're like, we're not going to do it for the eighth and the, you know, and, or after the ninth, which was originally the plan. Uh, they pulled the plug cause it was so bad. But I remember the only laugh I ever heard was Gary's laugh from the back. Just him going, ah! Ah! <laughs> just laughing that it was going so poorly. And at one point, probably like the fourth or fifth inning, the home team guy, the pitcher, was getting shelled. He wasn't doing well. So, and, and I wasn't doing well. I was, I was bombing. I was doing worse than him. And so he was, he was coming off. And I just thought, well, may, are you, you know, you're, you're struggling. You're trying to do anything. Like, like you were saying, like, maybe I'll try this. Yep. So I, I started thinking maybe I would do crowd work. And so I, I did it. I talked to maybe one guy, and that, that got more than nothing. And then I saw the team coming in from the field. And and I was like, oh hey, here's the here's the uh, here's the starting pitcher, everyone, blah blah blah. And he, uh, I won't give it to you, but he gave me he gave me a third, and uh, yeah, all I you know I, I crushed because the starting pitcher now is flipping me off in front of everyone. And then of course all I hear is <laughs> Gary's laugh in the back, and uh, it was it was awful. It was a tough one. Oh, that's so painful. Yeah, so that that I think, and again, there's 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 a plethora to choose from, but I think that that would be the one to hold up as as the worst. Yeah, <laughs> and people wonder why comics are jaded and cynical and <laughs> bitter. And <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, talking with Steve Mazon, you can uh, check out his website, stevemazon.com. That's uh, S-T-E-V-E-M-A-Z-A-N.com. Uh, again, you can follow him on Instagram at Steve Maison and Twitter at Steve underscore Maison. Uh, so what um, what advice do you have for I, – I, we kind of talked about this for, for new comics. Like what's the biggest mistake you always see them you know, th doing? Yeah, I, I think it, it really is expecting them the, – their expectation that they're going to be good. It, it's the – you see someone else and you think they're just a funny person. I remember getting the chance to talk with Brian Regan about comedy, who was my mm -hmm. favorite comedian. If people don't know him, look him up. Um, if you asked a hundred comedians who their favorite comedian is, probably half of them would say Brian Regan. He's, he's just fantastic. And I talked to him about this. There's an idea when you see someone funny, 
you just think, well, they're, they're just funny. They're just great. They're always been like that, that there was no learning curve for him or for Richard Pryor or for Robin Williams, that, you know, they were just, they were hilarious people and they stepped on stage and they were this great right away. And Brian Regan was like, I got a tape from three years ago that'll show you differently. <laughs> like <laughs> He'd been in the business 20 years by that time. So uh, the point he was trying to make is like, no, it's the, the same, the same problem, you know, we all go through that first few years. I'm, I'm not a huge Dane Cook comedy fan, but he has one of the greatest comedy quotes of all time. And it's, uh, he said, uh, I wouldn't wish the first seven years of stand-up comedy on my worst enemy. <laughs> so I, that, and that's a guy that's incredibly successful and is saying that about his enemy. He wouldn't wish that on. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it is, is again, there was, there was me leaving the laundry mat and be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be on the tonight show in three months, that kind of thing. Just, just know it's a process. Just know you're going to be terrible for a while. There's going to be lots up and downs. You, you got to get used to the rejection. Um, it's a learning curve, and it's very easy as you as you jump in. You're hanging around other people that are very good at it because you're 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 you know you still they still go to open mics. They still go to these these shows to practice to do what they can. Um, so it, it's easy to start, so all of a sudden be like, oh, they're great, and I'm not. And it's you give yourself, you know, give yourself, uh, be forgiven because yeah, it's, it's, it's a long road to, to figure it out. So that would be, be my big, that's big great thing. advice. That's really good advice. Um, so let's uh, switch gear. You talked about David Letterman again, and, uh, you ended up making a documentary, uh, about uh, that process. It was called dying to do Letterman. It's a yeah. great movie. If you get a chance oh, to see, you you. definitely check it out. Um, Tell us a little bit about what started that. What was the the cause yeah. of that in that process? So as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, Dave and his show became, you know, the impetus for like, that was my goal of, of the getting into stand-up comedy. Once I realized you could do it from seeing prior was like that, but seeing Dave's show and being like, ah, that's, that's what I want to be on that show. I want to be there. That's kind of uh, was always in the back of my head. So I started comedy uh, in the late nineties and about five or six years in, so it's about 2005. I was actually coming home from a show at the Improv out in uh, the Inland Empire there and um, had some pain in my side. I was with Gary Cannon and I was like, hey, we, him and I were pigs, so we were probably going to stop to eat on the way home. And I was like, hey, I don't think I can. I got some pain in my side and then got worse and worse. And then he had to drive eventually and I was in the back seat and got home. And my girlfriend at the time was now my wife. She's like, I think you got food poisoning. You know, we've all eaten at comedy clubs. So, we know, mm -hmm. that's probably the good diagnosis. But eventually we end up going to the hospital. And they're like, we think your appendix burst. And so then they, they say, we're going to do an appendectomy. So they go in. I wake up, and it's a different doctor. And he introduces himself as an oncologist and says, hey, your appendix was fine, but we found tumors all over your liver. We don't know if they're cancerous, but that's that's where we're starting. We're going to test all this. So uh, after months of, of tests, and it, it ended up being stage four, they, they found out that it was uh, stage four metastatic cancer that spread from my liver to my – or my intestines to my liver – and uh, they gave me you, you just kind of garbled out there for a second. Can oh, you yeah. uh, go ahead and repeat what, yeah. what kind of it was? So it was uh, neuroendocrine carcinoid tumors that I had on my liver. And it was stage four, which means that it had spread from somewhere else. So I, I went through like a month of tests to figure out where it had come from. Uh, and they eventually traced it back to my intestines that I had uh, surgery on to remove that source and, and, and stop the, the, the spread of it. Um, and the worst case scenario is a rare type of cancer. This, this, they call them nets, uh, for short, but neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, and the, the worst, they, they said you, you may only have five years to live. 
I'm not a worst case scenario guy. We're, we're here in 2020 now talking 15 years later. That didn't come true. But at that point, I, I didn't know. And I'm, the doctors who are very smart at UCLA are telling me that that's, uh, you know, five years is, is the worst case scenario. I asked what the best case was. And they were like, we don't really know. Maybe you could live 10 with this. So uh, again, I'm not a worst case guy. But if someone smart is saying that, you got to consider that. So I, I started asking myself, how do I want to spend those five years? And uh, the big thing that I had realized comedy wise is that I, I was doing comedy. I was happy with that. But I was kind of, you know, letting things unfold before me. I was, I was going out doing my best and then people would tell other people and I'd get work here and here. But I wasn't chasing that original goal, which was to get on the David Letterman show. So that I decided to use whatever time I had left to chase that goal. And so I, I started, this is going to sound crazy, but this is before Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. Um, I just started a website that was, it was ironically called Dying to Do Letterman. And the idea was that people could go to this website see my comedy. And then below it, there was a link. If you thought I was good enough, you could send an email to Dave and the, the, the people there. And um, uh, I gave myself a year. That was my original thing, a year to get on Letterman. And a, a year came and went. There was no way. <laughs> Eventually, a cease and desist letter came from the people at Letterman. They're like, you're not going to get on the show. It's not happening. Give it up. Uh, I think Again, I think they didn't. They thought this was like a make-a-wish thing, you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but anyways, it took... It took almost the whole five years of the uh, worst case scenario to get their attention, prove to them that I was really a comic and that I was good enough and to, to get them the right set to show them like, hey, this I, I'm 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 good as good as the, the not the best person you have on, but I, I'm as good as any of the, the people you put on the young comics that you put on there. Um, so it took a long time to prove it. But that that was the goal. Um, and, uh, yeah, a couple here in, uh, that I was friends with that happened to be filmmakers who had just graduated from UCLA heard about the project. So they very early on started following me and they're, they're the ones who made the movie dying to do letterman. And then, uh, that's on Amazon. If you want to see it, it's got a bunch of very funny comedians, Ray Romano, um, uh, Brian Regan's in there, uh, Kevin Nealon, uh, a bunch of funny people, uh, talking about what letterman meant to them. And then, you know, it kind of follows my journey as well. And uh, yeah, it, it's amazing, but it took, yeah, five years. So I eventually did get on at the end of, of 2009. That's awesome. I actually just had Eddie Brill on. Um, oh, awesome. Yes, yeah. yeah. Eddie so was the uh, talent coordinator for, for the comics on uh, Letterman. And uh, I, I just remember from uh, your the, the movie, you know, Kevin Nealon being like, he's not going to make it. Or <laughs> it's my favorite. I'll tell you a little behind the scenes story. So we interviewed... Kevin Nealon, uh, about his being on Letterman. He was on both the early Letterman and the, and the later one about it. And uh, so we met him, I think he was doing Weeds when we interviewed him, mm -hmm. if you remember that show on Showtime. Mm -hmm. And so we went with him to his, uh, um, his trailer and he was shooting. So we're in the trailer waiting for him. They're like, wait in his trailer and then you can interview him. Gets back. He comes in and he's so funny. He's fantastic. He's a great stand-up. People know him from acting and, you know, Saturday Night Live, but he's a really good stand-up, too. Uh, silly and smart, like we, we, we both like. Yeah. And so we have this great interview about Kid Letterman. How'd you get Letterman? He's being so funny about it. And then at the end, the, um, you know, for, for the movie, the, the filmmakers are like, hey, Steve, can we just get, we're going to stay in. Can, can we just get a shot of you? Kevin's going to show you out. So they 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 he they get him showing me out, you know, of his trailer. So he's still in the trailer, and I leave, and he closes the door, and he then he turns to the filmmaker and he goes, "He's not going to get out." 
you know, <laughs> and, uh, it's funny and hilarious uh, part of the film. Uh, but on top of it, the filmmakers who, again, they know me, they were my friends. Uh, they, they, they come out and they were like cracking up, but they're like, I was like, oh, it's so funny. And they, they didn't want to tell me because they're like, they thought, of course, I'm going to be sad about it. But, but I, it, it's, he, he's, he's hilarious. I mean, of course I wasn't mad. I know he was being funny. And, yeah. It's just that that's, that's, that's how comedians that's express how, their, are. exactly. Yeah. But it was so funny. They were worried. They were like, oh no, no, he made a joke. And I go, well, that's what we want. That's great. Let me ask you this. I don't. I, I know. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Um, and then we'll get back to the the comedy yeah. of it. How okay, did you? My, my thing's going to change. I got to plug my okay thing in here. <clears throat> How did you end up? Um, uh, like you said, you're not a worst case scenario guy, but yeah, the 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 diagnosis of cancer would would make a lot of people just kind of go, okay, that's it, and just kind of roll over. What was what was your mind frame kind of going through that? In, yeah. in saying like no and like this whole thing of like i'm gonna chase instead yeah that was a well that was a process too that's you know that that's the thing uh goes goes to that and i, I that, i'm glad you asked that because it goes to that same thing about hey don't beat yourself up if you're not great right away because it's a process you got to learn it and and same thing when i got that i'm plugging myself in here and then i'll, I'll look at <laughs> more uh focus okay so the, the same way when I got that news, I knew it was shattering. Like my, my girl, you know, my wife was my girlfriend at the time. I had only known her seven months at the time mm. dating. Like all of a sudden she's got to decide we're both in our thirties. Is she going to stay with someone who might not be here in five years? Like if she wants to have kids, am I the person to be with? Like just obviously big things like we, we loved each other, but that that's a different set of circumstances to say, I'm going to stay with you through this kind of thing. Right. Um, so I remember, yeah, leaving the doctor's office when we got that. And like, we had to pull the car over. Cause like when we got the news, like, and they said five years, you know, you, you're like, Oh, you're, you're taking it very, you know, like clinical on the way home. We had to pull the car over. Cause we both just looked at each other at a stop sign and started bawling both of us mm. and, and like hugged each other, like probably for a half hour on the side of the road. It was crazy. And, um, you know, you, you bounce back in small spurts where you're like, okay, you know, the next day I'm I, all right, I'm do whatever. And then the next day you're depressed. And so there were, there were months where I was, I was deep in it. Um, and I think, I think the project itself saved my, at least, I don't know that it saved me. I don't want to speak that far to it. Like, you know, because you know, the, the like, Oh, laughter heals and stuff like that. And then it kind of makes it sound that the people who right. died didn't laugh or something. Right. Like it, it's not that it's only, I really believe it's only luck that I'm still here. Um, and good, good health coverage, obviously, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. uh, people could do the same thing I'm doing and it. It's not, it's not a guarantee, but, uh, it, it sure gave me focus and it made me, um, uh, a better, I don't know, a better person isn't the right word, but, uh, handle life better to, to have a goal and to not sit, sit at home and be depressed, which I had, I was for months. It was a, it was very much a, uh, why me, you know, all the, those stages of, they talk about of, you know, of, uh, of, of death, you know, or when someone's dying or you're given a thing, you know, the, the anger, depression, uh, denial, all that kind of stuff. You know, after a week though, my, you know, my wife went back to work, all my friends who were there who gathered around me and that felt, made me feel good. They all went back to work. You know right. what I mean? And then two weeks later, I was like, oh shit, I have to get back to work. Cause I still have medical bills coming they're skyrocketing. They're coming in. I got to pay rent. So I can't just sit around and feel sorry for myself. So um, 
the routine helped me get a little past the depression and then having a goal like this, like, 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 okay, I'm going to turn the thing up on the, on the letterman. I was waiting for that to happen. Now I'm going to make it happen. That helped a little too. Um, so I think those two things, but yeah, there was still that, that amount. And again, even, even still today, I mean, yeah, I, I still have bouts where, where I feel really down and, and stuff like that. And there's why me and, you know, when I, when I go in, I'm still dealing with, you know, I still got to go in for scans and uh, see an oncologist every three months, that kind of thing where you, mm-hmm. feel, again, I'm still incredibly lucky compared to most cancer patients that, that my day-to-day life is, is pretty much like my old one. It's, it's just, you know, this thing hanging there that it could go wrong at any time. And that first year was bad, but, but since then I've been incredibly lucky, but there, there's still, yeah, there's ebbs and flows to it. Um, and I think those are the two things that helped me get through. Just the routine of life that we complain about often mm-hmm. allowed me to get back uh, away from it. <laughs> that life goes on. That was sad that life goes on, but it ended up also being good that life goes on. Absolutely. Um, so so you go for this. You're, I'm going to get on Letterman. Yeah. And then you get the call. You're going to be on Letterman. You get there. You, you go through you know rehearsal. Uh, you, you're waiting in the wings behind the curtain. Take us through that for when they say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Maison, and you walk out to your spot and you stare out into that audience. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was magical. And I'm going to say the reason it's magical, you'll be able to appreciate this. For some reason that day, I don't know if it was the journey to get there or what it was, because I haven't been able to tap into it since. Um, I was not nervous. And I, I don't say that uh, in, in a confidence way. I'm nervous when you and I do shows together at the Madhouse. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous at, at, at still. I could go to a coffee house that doesn't matter with two people in it. I get I get nervous. You know what I mean? I want to do my best. To sometimes, sometimes to lower the stakes, uh, I get more nervous for some reason. I, I have never figured out the formula of is it, is it what I ate that day? Is it if I took a walk? Is it I've never figured out the thing to... Why is sometimes I'm nervous and I'm not? But for whatever reason, that day, or at least those moments right before I went on, um, I was not nervous, and I, I still don't know why. I, I don't know what mm-hmm. ends, and it, like part of it again might have just been the journey up to it that I felt like I already won. I got there, and and that the, the the doing it was going to be the gravy part already. Um, but I was standing backstage. Uh, I did. I made sure to get there early. They take two shows that day. I was on the second one, <coughs> and. Um, I got there and I asked Eddie Brill. I said, "Hey, can I go out uh, and see where I'm going to stand?" And yep, he so he took me out and he, he stood. He I, I stood there and you're looking at the Ed Sullivan Theater. This is where the Beatles, you know, played and Elvis. And uh, I'm standing there. It's this gorgeous theater. I'm looking out at it and uh, I'm I'm running through the set in my head, kind of where I'm going to look for things and that kind of stuff. And Eddie comes up and he goes, "Okay, they're they're going to the audience is coming in. They're going to start bringing us. We got to go." I, I got to run to this thing. So I'll take you up to your dressing room. And then I remember saying to him, I go, can I stay? I'll find my way back to the dressing room. Is it okay if I stay? Cause there's always a weirdness for me when I play somewhere I haven't played before. My first mm-hmm. show always feels weird because I, it doesn't, it's new. Right. You know, and again, it goes back to the thing that we were talking about that stage time is so useful because there's stuff like that. Even if you get used to playing one place, well, you're going to have to go on the road and play places with different sight lines and different things that you never take into account. So I, I basically begged him, can I stay here and spend five more minutes on the spot where I'm going to perform? And, and he was like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, find your way back. And he's like, I got to go, though. And I'm like, okay. 
So I stayed there, ran through my set again, just took a moment to breathe in and be like, this is my space. This is, this is my spot. You know, this is this little point where they want me to stand in. This is my home feel so that when I came out later, I felt like I had already been there. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like the first time I had been there, you know? So I really, I really soaked it in, uh, went back up, got ready, got into all my, all my stuff. When I come back down, if you remember on the Letterman show, Biff, his stage manager, who was part of the show a lot of times, uh, he was backstage with me and he had the microphone uh, or actually didn't have the microphone because it was a lapel. But I had remembered a story uh, that played in this. Is how I remembered it because he had the microphone, but I wasn't going to use a microphone. He had a story about this great comedian, Nick Griffin, uh, who uh, got bumped from the show because the guest that they had on was 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 just go. It was going well, whoever the guest was. So Nick Griffin was standing backstage and Biff gave him the the microphone and said, OK, you're going on a moment. And then, as, you know, like a minute later. You know, Biff's talking to someone and he's like, oh, okay, he's going to be bumped. Okay. And, and they just came up and he, Nick said the way he found out he wasn't going to be on is, is Biff just took the microphone from him. So, <laughs> so Biff had a microphone and I remember being like, well, I'm not going to use a microphone. I, I'm set up with the lapel, but I just kept watching him. <laughs> I was like, if Every time he looked like he was hearing something in his headset, I was like, Ugh. and the, uh, the guest that was on before me was Doogie Hauser, uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Um, who at that time was doing um, uh, How I Met Your Mother, and he was killing it. He, I mean, it was it. That was the only thing. Like, it didn't make me nervous, but I, I in my head, I was like, "Hey, back off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta follow this," you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, of course, it was great. It was, it was almost like a warm up act because they were, they were in a good mood already. They're already laughing, uh, and then they went to break. But he kept doing well. He, they did extend him. So I thought I was going to get bumped, but it, uh, there was a band on after me too. So uh, and I knew I'd be bumped before the band because it's you know it's much easier to reschedule one person than a whole band that has their stuff there. So um, eventually, uh, no one says anything, and uh, he says goodnight to Neil Patrick Harris, and they go to commercial, and uh, Neil Patrick Harris comes backstage, and he he sees me, and I said I said oh really funny. He goes oh are you the comedian? And he talked, and he goes kill it out there. He said some nice words and. Um, I, I look back at Biff and he was still just waiting there. So I was like, I, I think we're doing this. And then, uh, all of a sudden you hear Dave come back and, um, Eddie Brill had told me this thing. He goes, what do you want your intro to be? And the first club that ever headlined me was wise guys in Utah. And I just happened to be going back there soon after. So I said, Hey, will you mention that I'm going to be at wise guys in Utah? And then Eddie goes, do you have another place? <laughs> he goes, I, Dave is just going to I just know Dave and he's going to laugh when he says wise guys comedy club. Like, and, and I go, well, that's, that's, they took care of me. They're the ones I want to help here. So no, I want, I want it to be wise guys. And he goes, okay, you know, no problem. Uh, sure enough, Dave gets, he goes, our next comedian, you can catch him at wise guys, wise guys comedy club. <laughs> Mafia Renna, And he went on for like a minute making fun of wise guys comedy club and then finally brought me out. But it, it kind of, you know, I was cracking up. So it took me out of my head for a second. Um, then walked out. Yeah. Did it. And it, it was amazing. It was everything I could have, you know, sometimes moments don't live up to what you want them to be. And that, that one did. And it, I actually thought in one of my, you, you know, the great thing about comedy is how much can go through your mind at once. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about the joke you're telling how you're delivering it. Don't forget to do the eyebrow. Don't forget to turn a little. Yeah. You think about how the last joke is at the same time, how the last joke didn't do as well as you thought it was going to do. You're thinking about the next joke. Make sure don't forget when you get to that, like all that at the same time. So I'm on stage. I remember hearing, uh, 
uh, Paul Schaefer laugh. I remember hearing Dave laugh at a couple times. And so that's in my head. And then I'm thinking, I started thinking, I was like, the whole five years of my life of chasing this dream came to me. And I was like, just keep going. What are they going to do? <laughs> don't, don't stop. Like, like, don't say, because they say, what's the last word of your joke? So they know the band kicks in when you say your last word. I was like, just don't say that word. Just start telling other jokes. What, what, what can they do? Like, what, that was going into my head. And then all of a sudden I start thinking, you're on TV, idiots. Get out of your head. Get out of your joke. Like, you're going to screw up the joke because you're thinking about this too much. You know? Yep. So all that was going through my head at the same time. And, uh, yeah, I, I obviously did not uh, break the rules. I, I finished it up. And, and that's when you get to meet Dave. You don't meet him before the show. So oh, wow. after I finished, like, I was like, ah. And I took a you know, deep breath. And I'm enjoying And people were applauding. And then I was like, oh, Dave's coming up behind me. <laughs> so if, if you watch – uh, you, if you watch the set on YouTube, you put Steve Mays on Letterman, you can watch the set and you can see how excited I am when Dave <laughs> walks up behind me. I'm like, I look like a little five-year-old. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so excited. Cause I had never thought like, of course, now you're done. You're going to get to meet Dave. It was awesome. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if they want to check that out, go on YouTube, Steve Maison Letterman. Follow you on Instagram at Steve Maison, Twitter at Steve underscore Maison. You also have a Dry Bar comedy special out, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which they can check out on uh, Dry Bar. Uh, I think it's drybarcomedy.com. Dry comedy, yeah. But, yeah. And, and uh, we'll check that out. Let's um, now, I just want to touch really quickly. You you won an Emmy uh, for, yeah. for yeah. writing, like, do you, do you throw that in uh, Gary's face at all? <laughs> oh, <laughs> just like, just like, hey, Gary, look at this. I'm kind of uh, – it, it feels weird to me to have it. I'll be honest. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't keep it out. People are always like, why don't you have that at your front door? Why don't you have it <laughs> on your hood ornament on your car kind of thing? Um, and listen, I in a different circumstance, I might. I, I I won that Emmy. I wasn't even at Ellen anymore when, that, when we won the Emmy. So, first of all, it wasn't just me. It was the writing staff. Uh, but I have I have an Emmy with my name on it, so I, I won an Emmy. But it was like wasn't like, you know, who's writing we like on the Ellen DeGeneres show? Steve Mazon. He's the best. You know, yeah, what I mean? like, right? Like it wasn't they gave it to me and no one else. So we it's all the collective, won. yeah. Yes, a collective Emmy. So it was part of a team. And like I said, someone called me up because I wasn't at the show anymore when when the when they won. So uh, someone called me up and was like, "Hey, you know, you just won an Emmy," and I was like, "What?" You know. So it it feels different to me. Had I had I been had I got to do a Cuba Gooding Jr. moment where right. I, someone, a star handed me the Emmy, I might be a little more cocky about it, but uh, it feels, it feels a little different. I'm very, very proud of it, but uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a show off one to me. <laughs> yeah. And we, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of what it was like writing um, for Ellen. Uh, just any final thoughts of, of, of that experience on, on Ellen? Yeah, just I, again, it, it was it was different. It's a different thing. I was I was the only stand up comedian that was writing. Oh, for wow. Yeah, uh, it was the rest were all writers. How did you get the gig? So it, it's funny. This is here's another thing that I, the, that's good advice to young comedians: be bold, be bold. Uh, I think uh, if fortune favors the bold. I think that someone some smarter than than me said that. Um, uh, being a clean comedian, I had that reputation. I had a friend of a friend um, who worked for the show. And then another one of my friends ended up being Ellen's assistant, uh, some guy I started with uh, in, in the Bay Area. So this is another good thing. This is just like you said, get a group of friends and always make new friends. It's a, it's a very 
from the outside, sometimes it looks like comedians hate other comedians. I don't understand those people who don't like other comedians. We're all in the same boat. Like, you, no one else can share the misery that we all have together. Why would you ever be mean to another comedian? I don't get it. Uh, so they were looking. I think they were having. They had a revolving door of of, uh, of writers going through, and so my friend heard about that and he just knowing that I was a clean comedian. And I think in the angle of Ellen observational, you know, friendly comedy, uh, he said, Hey, they're looking, uh, you know, I'll put you in touch with the head writer. And he said, this is what they're looking for. I remember it was like, you had to do three monologues, a couple sketch ideas, and then some other like stuff that you would do on the street kind of thing. And so, um, I sent in my, my stuff. The head writer got back to me. He goes, Oh my God. He goes, I love it. Uh, I love it. I love your stuff. The stuff you wrote is really great, but we just hired someone. <laughs> and I was like, ah, and I, like I said, I knew they, they had a revolving door. And uh, so I wrote back, I, I figured I had nothing to lose at this point. So I wrote back and I said, oh, great. And uh, I said, great. I'm going to send you a new monologue every week until you hire me. Hmm. And he wrote back and said, I love this idea. And two weeks later, I sent him, I had sent him two monologues. In the meantime, two weeks later, they got rid of that writer and hired me. Wow. So uh, again, I'm and I'm not that kind of usual bold person, but uh, it is it is the thing like I was talking about, like that we live in more of a share your dream society now than we did 20 years ago. Um, people say aren't afraid as much to say the crazy dream they have in their head, and I, I think that's a good thing. That's a nice thing about the world now is that we're in that. But I think being bold in those moments like that, again, don't be a dick. That uh, some right. people mistake that. Um, but, uh, again, if, if you know, you can deliver, then, then, then it's good to be bold in those moments, like separate yourself from the other people. Think about, think about that. Like there's you and you and I, especially we're, we're white guy comics. There's, right. there's thousands of us, you know, uh, you're fantastic at it. And that's what separates you. The impressions people know, like, ah, impression is Brian. You know what I right. mean? That's, that separates you from 99.9% .9 of other comedians. So I, I think those moments of where you can find a time to be bold, that was that was it. I knew that if I sent that to this guy, he had never had anyone else say, I'm going to give you more than you want. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to I'm going to even though you didn't hire me, I'm going to send you more monologues. And that that's what made him remember. me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. Well, let's switch real quickly into um, uh, you have an organization that uh, you like to to help promote. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're doing a lot of really good things. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about it. It's called uh, Say Yes to Hope. Say Yes to Hope. So, yes, I was I've been luckily lucky through this uh, cancer journey to meet so many other survivors that hear the story of that I have with, with Dindy Letterman and, and my cancer story to meet uh, great organizations, great people. And one of the greatest is a woman I met very early on. Her name is Suzanne Lindley. Uh, L-I-N-D-L-E-Y. And she started this uh, organization called Say, Say Yes to Hope. And they help other uh, people who get diagnosed with cancer uh, cope with it. You know, there's so much stuff when you, you know, the Suzanne Komen, I'm not trashing any of these other things, but you know what I mean? Right. There, there's a, we're creating, you know, it's uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, that kind of thing. And I, yeah, I'm not trashing any of that. That's great. But we're all aware of breast cancer. There's you don't have to tell. Like I don't know what the awareness is anymore. Is there anyone that doesn't know about breast cancer? Right. Um, it's out there. Research. You know, money. Great. Send money to research. But there's also people that day to day just need some help coping with it. Like again, when, it, when those months when I first got diagnosed, there's plenty of literature at the oncologist that you can pick up a brochure. But it's it's a piece of paper you got to read. And there's things to have someone that that can talk to you. 
is so valuable. And that's what Suzanne Lindley has kind of uh, started. There's a website you can go to. So you can, so you can just, if, you, if you're a shy person, just get the information. But there's also someone that'll, they'll talk to you about it. And she, she, she has groups. They meet across the country. They, um, they go to Washington to uh, lobby uh, for more cancer stuff and for the, the, the rare types of cancers that aren't getting enough attention and for healthcare stuff. So she's, yeah, luckily someone I've met along the way that's uh, like a living angel. She's like mm. one of these people that you're just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm an awful person. If this, is, this, is, this is an example of what a good person is. And just, you know, uh, I thought I was good until I met this person. That could yeah. be kind of person where you're just like, oh my God. So yeah, she does incredible stuff uh, for cancer, people going through cancer, survivors, all that kind of stuff and their families. And um, yeah, she's she's amazing. So that's her organization. Yeah, you can find more about it at sayyestohope.org. Sayyestohope.org. And I, I almost forgot to ask you this question. Uh, sure. I would be, uh, we're going to go back to comedy real quick. And I know we're, we're getting kind of long here. Um, you got a chance. Know. You yeah. got a chance to meet. I could talk comedy forever. Yeah. Um, you got a chance to to meet Robin Williams. Uh, he came oh, to your yeah. premiere of, or not premiere, but he came to one of your showings of Dying to Do yeah. Letterman. And I mean, Robin Williams is you know one of the greats of the greats of the greats. So just if you want to just talk about that really quickly. Yeah. So uh, I so from the story earlier, I started comedy in San Francisco. So I have so many ties to the to the Bay Area. Uh, I go back and work the clubs often. And there's a great uh, Robin lived lived up there. You know, he would split time, even though he was a big movie star. He would split time and still live in San Francisco, where he started comedy and grew up. And so you would see him out at open mics and stuff. He would he would show up. He would be doing a show at a bar that's terrible, and all of a sudden you'd be looking out. I remember one time looking out and seeing Lee Levine, our friends Lee Levine and Gary Cannon, uh, looking at me dying on stage, and there was five people half paying attention at the bar. And in the back door that I could see from the you know, the stage, Robin Williams walked in and he looked around and, and it was terrible. So he walked back out, but he would just show up and he was this huge star and he didn't have an entourage or anything like that. He would just pop up times. And so I got to meet him. Uh, yeah, probably a dozen different times over the years. Uh, but one of the special times was we were showing Dying to Do Letterman uh, before it kind of, you know, went out there. It was on the film festival circuit and we shared it at a theater in a, uh, called the Throckmorton, which if you're ever near Marin, go to the Throckmorton. It's one of the great uh, community theaters um, across the country. And they would do a comedy show there <clears throat> as well um, that Mark Pitta and friends ran. And then it, uh, Lucy Mercer organizes it. Uh, she allowed me to show Dindu Letterman there uh, as well when we were kind of bringing it out to the, to the public. And we we're showing it. And all of a sudden, I was in the green room because I had seen the movie. And um, there all of a sudden was a little buzz. They're like, oh, my God, uh, Robin's here. I'm like, what? Like Robin's here, and uh, Robin showed up and, and watched the movie. Like he just he was he lived in Marin and he just showed up and watched the movie, and then he came in the green room afterwards and we talked. And yeah, he raved about the movie. And again, it just if you if you would have told twelve year old Steve Mazon that you'd be talking to Robin Williams about a movie you made and that he came to watch, like my head would have exploded. Uh, it was so surreal, and he was such a a gentle human being, uh, obviously incredibly troubled and had his demons. But, uh, one of those guys, you know, I, I had heard this growing up. Don't, don't meet your heroes, you know, don't meet your mm -hmm. heroes. And, and, you know, now you don't even have to meet them just because they're, you know, you see stupid things like someone you like, and then you see on social media or something or some action caught. I was lucky to meet two of my heroes, Walter Payton, who I mentioned in the beginning, and then Rob Williams. And he couldn't have, he, 
he improved whatever I thought about him. He was just the most gentle person I've ever met. I mean, that, that what you see of him in like Goodwill hunting, like that he's tapping into that was, that was the real Rodman. It wasn't the, the manic crazy guy on stage. I mean, he can pull that out at any point, but it was just, just, you could have a real conversation with him very quickly. You know, you know, it's when you meet someone new, it always feels awkward, but mm -hmm. he just had a magic about him where he could, he could take that away despite him being a huge star. And so, yeah, uh, one of the great moments of my life is, is, yeah, him showing up in that green room and said, saying how much he loved the movie. And I remember him like loving Denise, my wife. He's like, Oh my God, she's yeah, a comedy <laughs> wife. She's like a snake. You know, like, he meant like, like, she's like, she's strong and she's powerful. Like, you know, don't get in the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah, very, very awesome. What a great moment! Yeah, awesome, awesome story. And you can see the moment someone someone videotaped it. Like oh, very cool. So yeah, if you put yeah, Rob Williams, Steve Mazon, Letterman, dying to do Letterman, something like that. It's on there somewhere. That's awesome. And Steve, um, I want to thank the the viewers and uh, listeners for for tuning in. Want to thank you so much for being on here. Um, definitely check out sayyestohope.org um wonderful organization yes. and again if you want to follow steve uh, check him out stevemazon.com uh steve mazon on instagram and steve underscore mazon on twitter and thank you so much dude for for coming out let's do this again yeah and thanks we'll, we'll, i could again i could talk comedy and i could talk to you forever you're a, yeah you're one of my great comedy friends so so thanks for having me my my pleasure love having you and we'll we'll do this again and we'll maybe we'll get a little uh group with uh, Gary and Lee and, and we'll just explore, uh, explore some stories. So thanks again, man. And I will talk to you real soon.